Hey, good morning. Earlier in our worship this morning, you heard a very special announcement from John Skipworth, one of our shepherds, about church leadership making the decision for our church to enter into the process of gathering again for the purpose of worship at our church campus. Now, I'm super excited about that, and I look forward to it, but I want to take a minute or two this morning to talk about the process of how we get there successfully. But before I do that, I just want to say thank you to our church family for the way that you have handled this pandemic thus far. You have been prayerful, you've been encouraging, you've been in contact with others. I mean, I know so many of you who took time on Sunday afternoons and Saturday afternoons or took time during the work week to call church members, uh, sometimes members that you might not have even known very well. And it was to, to make contact. It was to check check in. It was to see if there was a need or something that you might help with. And it was so important because what you were doing were helping people to feel and to stay connected in our church fellowship at a time when we weren't seeing each other and being around each other very much. And I just want to say thank you for that important thing. And you've been so generous with your resources and you've been um, so sensitive and concerned with people who were going through grief and through tragedy and through loss. And you've been so cooperative. And I could just go on and on and on. But believe me when I say I've never been more proud of our church family than I have been through this pandemic and the way that you've just stepped up. And then secondly, I want to say that this process for us to gather together again, to gather again, is going to be tricky. And not just for our church, it's going to be tricky for all churches. And the reason for that is that this is a unique time in church history. I mean, there are no game plans for this. Everything is not obvious. There are more ways to mess this up than there are to do it rightly. And decisions are going to be difficult because information changes on a daily basis. It's going to be difficult because it's socially complex. It's, it's difficult because we're talking about some behavior changes. And at the bottom line, we're talking about the welfare of people. And that is always going to be a priority to our church family. We love God and we love people. And that will always be a priority. But thirdly, while it presently looks as if we're beginning to transition to something different than we've experienced over the last two and a half months, perhaps, just perhaps, some of our most important work as God's people in a pandemic is still ahead of us. And this is what I mean. We live not only in a divided nation, we also live in a divisive nation as well. We not only live in a divided nation, but a divisive nation as well. I don't need to list all the ways that this virus over the past three months has become politicized because we see it, we hear it, we, we, we feel it, and we live with it every day. If Shakespeare were alive today, he might say it this way, to mask or not to mask, that is the question. Michelle Margolis, in her 2018 book, From Politics to the Pews, writes that there was a time in church, in, in American history, in American culture, where faith informed politics. The faith, our religion, our theology, what we believed about God, formed how we thought politically. She writes that now it's just the opposite. And I think we all knew this, that politics now shapes our faith, even to the extent that it sometimes determines which church we're going to go to. It's about politics rather than theology. And we live in a time where now, she writes, our houses of worship have become, have become political echo chambers. Our houses of worship have become political echo chambers. Now, I believe that if churches, if they become shaped more and more by political leanings and political rhetoric, rather than the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, those churches will become more and more irrelevant in this increasingly secular culture. 
I think the call to be the church is different. And in the few minutes I have left, I want to share a couple of things from Scripture that can form as an example of what our church is to look like during this period of time, as well as two essentials that will help it to be so. Because one of the things that I believe about our church and all churches is that our church can take a lead when it comes to bringing unity and showing what unity and diversity looks like when God is at the head of that community. And it begins with this example. The church is an example of the, you know, the present church is an example. It models the future God-saturated world. Let me say that again. The present church models the future God-saturated world. In other words, when people look at the church, they should be able to see the blessing of what it looks like, what life looks like when God is in charge. Throughout the Bible, from Genesis to the maps, God in relationship with his people was always seen as a microcosm of what the fallen world could become through God's forgiveness and God's love. Think about it this way, the temple in Jerusalem. God's glory dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem where through forgiveness, humans could enter into God's presence. They could enter into God's beauty. They, they were engaging with God and God was engaging with them. And the temple and everything that happened at the temple was a microcosm of what the world should look like when the world was saturated with the presence of God. And then we move to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, it goes one step further. In the New Testament, each believer, each Christian, each disciple of Jesus becomes the temple of God as God's Holy Spirit moves into their heart. Now, a couple of places where Paul makes this clear is in the Corinthian correspondence. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temples? and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. He says very plainly that we are the temple of God and God's Spirit dwells in us. And the ramifications and the implications for life when that happens, God engaging with humans and humans engaging with God, the way that Paul describes it, the implications are just mind-boggling. And then he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. What the church is modeling is what people look like, what the world looks like when it is saturated with the presence of God. Now, another image moving from temple, another image is the body of Christ. In the context of where Paul is writing in, in the Corinthian correspondence, he is writing where the church is kind of divided because they don't understand how they are all different, but all an essential part of becoming the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you are the body of Christ and each one of you has a part of it. These images, temple and body, body and temple, were reminders that where the world's greatest beauty, where the world's greatest beauty is con concentrated most is the church. The images are reminders that where the world's greatest beauty is concentrated is the church. The church stands as a deliberate signpost to the world as to what it should be and what it will be one day. The church declares that the hard-won victory of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and the, the, the giving, the pouring out of the Spirit and the changing of our lives, that the hard-won victory of Jesus on the, cross, on the cross is real, that it's true, that it's legitimate, that it's life-changing, that it's heartbreaking, and that it's dazzling. 
and that it is precisely what the world needs today. And there are at least two essentials that make this so. First essential, an uncanny love. I like the word uncanny, even though it's a word we don't use much anymore. It means when something is uncanny, it means that it possesses a supernatural or inexplicable basis. In some way, it's beyond ordinary. In some way, it's beyond normal. In fact, it's extraordinary. And it, th this uncanny love is what Jesus is talking about to his disciples in John chapter 13, where he's trying to help them to understand how they are to live with each other and within the world. And he says in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. That is, as I have loved you by washing your feet, as I have loved you in, in, in engaging my life with you, in, in loving you as I will on the cross and laying down my life for you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. It's not because you love like everybody else. It's because you love as I love. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another like this. This uncanny love of Jesus becomes the pattern for the way that I love other people. And quite frankly, folks, this becomes exceedingly hard to do when the really important issues of our day become politicized. When we politicize anything, it is no longer about people, really. It becomes about power. It becomes my agenda over your agenda, my desire over your desire, my rights over your rights. And this is not the mind of Christ who looked to the interests of others, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Now, looking at human beings and loving them this way is, is a tremendously difficult thing. And I've always been blessed by this passage from C.S. Lewis out of one of his most famous sermons, The Weight of Glory, where at the very end of it, he reminds us that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are all mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is with immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit sometimes. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. End of quote. Friends, we must never lose sight of the fact that we are called to have this uncanny love for human beings. And how we love others indicates something about what we believe about the love of God. So it's not only an uncanny love that concentrates this beauty in the world and the church, but it's also a counterintuitive humility. Have we, you know, have we ever been so confident on unfounded certainties as we are these days? A couple of months ago in a board meeting, we were, we were reminded as we were making some hard decisions about the future of a ministry, we were reminded of some very wise word from a fellow by the name of Seth Godin. And Seth Godin in his April blog said something like this, in meditating, uh, a meditation on when it comes to predicting the future, there are two things. We do it all the time, constantly, and we're terrible at it. We should be humble when it comes to the future, knowing that only God knows the future. My dad used to say, you can write volumes on what I don't know. We should be humble, humble people.
not only in the presence of God, but in the presence of, of, of human beings. And as humble people, our treatment of others, especially those who might differ with us on the spectrum of, on the spectrum of current issues, will be more Christ-like than conspiracy-driven, more honoring than skeptical, and more unifying than divisive. In humility, we need to practice the big three that we've been talking about for the last two weeks. We need to be quick to listen. We, we need to be slow to speak and slow to anger. And what I'd like to do is just to end with these two passages from Paul. Paul in Philippians 2 says, you know, to disciples of Jesus, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he says to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 14, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. We have done so many wonderful things as a church together through this pandemic. And as we come together in this highly politicized climate that is San Antonio, Texas, and the United States of America, let us be reminded that as a church, what we're doing is modeling what people look like, what the world should look like when it's saturated with God, when God is king, when God is sovereign. And part of the essential ingredients for that to be true and for that to be so in our church is that we have to have an uncanny love for each other. And we have to have a counterintuitive humility in the presence of other people. And so as we begin the processes of gathering together for worship, let us consider these things. Our church should lead the way for what it looks like when a group of diverse people strive to be one in Christ. There are so many things that can divide a church, but the one thing that brings it together is the cross of Jesus. Number two, our uncanny love for one another is a sign that we belong to Christ and to no other. Number three, not everyone agrees on the details of the pandemic, but what we do believe is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who might believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And, not, and, and number four, not everyone, not everybody is ready to come back. And that's okay. No judgment. We are the body of Christ, whether we are all together in a worship assembly in one place or whether we have scattered, we have dispersed our worship across San Antonio. God bless our church as we begin this process together again and let us pray. Father, help us to be a beacon of light and of hope and of optimistic, uncanny love and counterintuitive humility in each other's presence because of the way that Jesus lived among us. Father, bless our church in this process. Give our, our, our church leaders wisdom and insight and knowledge. And we pray, Father, to always reflect your love in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.